And that next summit is, of course, the Big Bricks Summit. The Big Bricks Summit in Johannesburg, South Africa. Now, at the moment, it's still ongoing, so it hasn't concluded yet. So we'll do a follow-up on this in the next week's episode, so stay tuned. But as of right now, as of right now, we have a good enough list of things to talk about for the time being. I mean, hopefully we'll get something concrete to come out of it and we can discuss the summit in depth. But for now, we can just go over the things that we know are likely to be discussed here and what they might mean. Now, before the summit, there was a bit of hubbub uh, in the months prior to the meeting because South Africa, being a part of the International Criminal Court, the ICC, would have been obligated to arrest Putin if Putin showed up in South Africa for this summit. Uh, and the issue was resolved by them just sending Sergei Lavrov in, in Putin's place. Uh, Sergei Lavrov being a, a very reliable substitution for Putin when it comes to matters of foreign affairs. So everything's going rather smoothly for the time being. That issue was avoided entirely. And as of now, 40 countries, well, over 40 countries, have attended. Now, I, I was trying to get a little bit of info on this, and I was reading an article from Reuters, and oh my goodness, it, it's, it was bad. <laughs> it was bad. It was just so much derision and so much, so much salt. There was just so much salt, and it was... It's just like, wah, 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 cry me a Mississippi. Get out of here. It's like this motley crew consisting of countries like Iran and Argentina. And they just completely ignore the fact that, yeah, Iran and Argentina is there, but China, India, Russia, Brazil, Mexico, Indonesia, Egypt, Saudi Arabia, the heavy hitters, okay? It's like they tried to paint this as though this was a meeting of the most backwater of backwater nations. <laughs> when you have some of the heaviest hitters from an economic standpoint showing up to this summit, we just talked last week about how Russia is in purchasing power parity terms. They are the largest economy in Europe and fifth largest in the world. China in purchasing power parity is number one. And if I'm not mistaken, I think India is somewhat. I think India is on top. Let me, I'm going to look that up. I actually don't know where India's economy ranks. So I'm going to look that up right now. Economy uh, ranking. But yeah, it's not like these are some. Oh, India is. Wait, it says India's fifth. That, that They must not be doing purchasing power parity. Oh, brother. I got to. I don't even know what the point of this whole nominal GDP thing is. What's the point? What's the point? If you're not going to account for the conditions on the ground, then what's the point? Uh, PPP. There we go. PPP. Oh, they're the third. Wow. <laughs> they're the third largest economy in purchasing power parity terms. Fifth largest in nominal. Third largest in purchasing power parity terms. China's number one, India's number three, Russia's number five, United States is number two in purchasing power parity terms. So who's number four? That, that has to be Japan, right? Uh, uh, 
GDP. Um, I'm doing all this live. I'm doing all this live. Yeah. So we have. Hey, get out of my way. No. India. Yeah, Japan's number four. Germany's. Ah. Wait. I guess this is not updated yet because Russia has overtaken Germany as number five. Germany, which means Germany's number six in purchasing power parity. But yeah, Japan's number four. But India's number three in purchasing power parity terms with nearly half the economy of the United States. And China's economy is larger than the United States. Russia's number five in purchasing power parity terms. And and they're the largest economy in Europe. The largest economy in Europe. Indonesia, number seven. Brazil, number eight. Like, come on now. Let's let's stop playing games with these people. Let's uh I it's it's so hard to have discussions with people about this because they immediately write off the entire rest of the world as poor, bankrupt, and broke. <laughs> but then when you look at the numbers, it's like, oh wow, all these uh allies we have aren't quite as useful as we thought they were. Oh wow. The fastest growing economies on the planet are all not in the west i mean the, the united states is being deindustrialized, and even then we're still such a massive outlier to the rest of them that it's just ridiculous and, I, and you know what that probably just comes with the size america's a gargantuan place with a gargantuan population three if if there was ever any doubt that we had 300 million people living here uh go to a mall on black friday and you'll realize that that's not an exaggerated number so one can only imagine what a population of a billion and a half would look like <clears throat> China, India, but these are heavy hitting economies and the fastest growing economies. You have Egypt, Arabia, the UAE. Uh, these are, these are not slouches, Turkey joining BRICS, Venezuela, massive oil producer, damn near all of OPEC wants in on the BRICS. It, uh, uh, now tell me that's not meaningful. Tell me that damn near all of OPEC and OPEC plus trying to join the BRICS isn't meaningful. That essentially makes BRICS OPEC plus plus. Except now you have massive mineral producers. Now you have massive manufacturers, China. Now you have raw materials. Now you have all the other raw materials, Africa, Brazil. Like, come on now. This is a massive summit. I, I know I'm going on a tangent about this, but it's not like Reuters is the only one downplaying the significance of this. Like if you are not looking at alternative media, nobody's really talking about the BRICS summit in any context other than, oh, they want to replace the dollar. China's China, uh, China's trying to usurp American influence around the world. It's so much bigger than China, bro. It's so much bigger than China. Please hear me. It's so much bigger than China. It is literally the world, minus Europe, minus United States. It's literally the world. Everyone's in on the take, except for us, because we're too busy thinking about the West. <laughs> My goodness. But yeah, we have 40 countries in attendance, uh, damn near half of that trying to join the alliance formally. Uh, and on the topic of expansion, it seems as though the core members of BRICS, that being Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa, it seems that they have reached a consensus that expansion is a go. They're, they're going to green light expansion of the BRICS, which means that countries like 
Iran, Mexico, Venezuela, Saudi Arabia, Egypt, uh, Turkey, they're likely to gain full membership in the months ahead. And that's going to have a massive impact on the global economy. Because now you're going to have these fast-growing economies with these large populations. Egypt has 100 million people. Turkey has 80 million people. Iran has 80 million people. You start to link them up with energy, manufacturing, infrastructure, development, and then you sort of you sort of uh, trickle that into Africa with all the investment going in it, and then you overlay the BRI on top of that, the Belt and Road. Like, this is a positive feedback loop in the international economy. And they're seeking to, to sort of sort of put a foundation under that. They're going to underride the entire thing with a new currency. It's not going to be a currency that you walk around with in your pocket. That, that, that seems to have been ruled out so far. But they're going to have a gold-backed trade settlement currency. So this is a currency that's only going to exist in trade settlements, purely so they don't have to use the dollar. Purely so they don't have to use the dollar. And countries are ditching the dollar. They're already doing trade in local currencies, uh, namely in Africa and in East Asia. And even between Russia and Turkey, you see this, and Russia and China. All this trade being done not in U.S. dollars. You throw in a gold-backed trade settlement currency, why would anyone want to use the dollar? If I have to choose between a currency that is based in confidence and a currency that's based in gold, I'm going to choose the currency based in gold. Why wouldn't I? I'd be goofy to do otherwise. And so that's exactly what they're going to do. And then what happens to us? We get inflation because they're not going to want our dollars anymore. So they're going to hand them right back and hand them right. They're going to dump the dollar in whatever way they can. They're going to go selling off dollar denominated assets so they can get assets denominated in other currencies. Or perhaps they want to keep larger reserves of their own currency on hand to use for the trade settlement or larger reserves of say the Russian ruble or the, the Indian rupee or Chinese yuan. It's gonna be like a, a basket of currencies is the term that I'm hearing thrown around. It's not gonna be, oh, yuan, oh look, the yuan's the reserve currency now. No, it's not gonna be that way. Again, it's bigger than China, it's the world. But another thing I've seen, another thing I've seen, and the, the BRICS summit is a part of that, and perhaps the biggest part of that, to tell you the truth, in terms of reshaping the global order. When you look at BRICS, when you look at the Russia-Africa summit and Russia promising it skills-based development and energy-based development in Africa, when you look at the, the Belt and Road Initiative, when you look at the Organization of Islamic Cooperation, when you look at the Arab League and the, the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, and even the CSTO, when you uh, go back in time, you see how they the Russians and their CSTO allies thwarted uh, attempted overthrows of the government in Belarus and Kazakhstan in 2020 and 2021, respectively. What we're noticing, and again, BRICS is sort of the, the crowning jewel of this all, of the whole thing. What we're noticing is that multilateral international institutions are being used as counter mechanisms 
to U.S. hegemony in one region after the next. One region after the next. Especially the Arab League and the, and the OIC when it comes to the Middle East. That's just a wombo combo. Oh, and OPEC. How could I forget OPEC? And OPEC Plus. Remember when Biden went begging on his knees for the, the Arabians not to cut production and raise the prices and they cut it anyway because who cares what he thinks when we have OPEC Plus and we literally have this organization for the raising and the lowering of the oil prices? You're not a member. Why do we care about you? And quite frankly, Biden never should have had to go because he never should have sabotaged our energy production. We should have never even been in that position to where we, it was an, even an idea. We would have been thanking them. But when you see all these international organizations, some of them large, some of them small, but most of them regional. Again, the Arab League, the OIC, the Russia, Africa, Africa, the African Union, uh, and even the, the Eurasian Economic Union as well, although that one plays a lesser role. The CSTL, the former Soviet space, so you have these regional and then broader international organizations, which collectively marshal the strength of multiple nations to fight U.S. hegemony. Now, people conflate this with, oh, the world is uh, fighting the United States. Oh, this is dangerous for the United States. No, 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 no. It's dangerous for U.S. control and hegemony. But when you're like me and you recognize that we really don't need the control, because why do we need to be in Africa? Why do we need to be in the Middle East? Why do we need to be in Asia? We're not. Why do we need to have a presence in the Indo-Pacific? What are we going to do in the Indian Ocean? Why are they there? Let's go. Let's go home. Why are we in Ukraine? When you're like me and you realize that a lot of these places really don't matter to the United States. You realize, oh, it's not a threat to the U.S. It's easier to recognize the distinction between the U.S. and the U.S. empire. I'll say that much. Because none of the things happening, none of the things going on with any of these organizations and them pushing us out of their regions, as we're seeing with all the peace moving through the Middle East, as we're seeing with the, the wrapping up of the Syrian civil war, as we're seeing with, well, we're probably going to see at some point with Africa as... Russia and China get more involved with them. But you can sort of see the sentiments being built up with the coup in Niger and how many people oppose Western intervention, Western domination there. And that in that specific part of Africa, it's primarily targeted at France. You can see that it's not the U.S. who's in danger. It's the control that's in danger. It's the control. It's not us. It's not France in danger because there's a coup in Niger. They didn't get embargoed because there was a coup in Niger. They got embargoed because they threatened to put them down militarily. And then they got what they fucking deserved. Uh, hopefully they can resolve it. But the coup by itself in Niger wasn't a threat to France. Just as Syria demanding its land back isn't a threat to United States. Just as Iran and Saudi Arabia making peace and, and that peace being brokered by China isn't a threat to United States. It's not a threat to us. It's a threat to our control over other places around the world. That's the empire. Therefore, it is a threat to the empire. 
if we don't have the control, then we don't have an empire. We don't need the empire, but the imperialists in Washington don't view it that way. And that's what this is. All these international organizations, one after the next, and sometimes overlapping with one another, working together to force out U.S. hegemony, ending U.S. control in region after region after region. And the most prescient examples of this, again, being Belarus and Kazakhstan, when Russia intervened to keep us from overthrowing Belarus and to keep us from overthrowing Kazakhstan with, with the OIC accepting Iran back in and Iran being able to actually fill their seat at the OIC because Arabia let their their diplomats in. With the Arab League welcoming Syria back into their the family. And then the Belt and Road and, and the Russia-Africa cooperation overlaying with one another to do these development projects in Africa. One after the next, you have these international organizations being used and being leveraged by the nations who are a part of them to end or weaken U.S. control over their own countries, the countries who are a part of these organizations. They're being used as a counter mechanism to U.S. hegemony in one region after the next and increasingly to great effect. It's interesting to watch, I'll say that much, although it does have me worried that people in my government are going to get weird ideas about using military intervention to solve every problem that they face because they don't know how to do diplomacy. They don't know how to talk and they don't know what a U.S. interest is. They really don't. That's the danger I see. Not the danger that they're just that these other countries who want us to leave are going to one day wake up and just start bombing America. But that our government is going to do something stupid. Like the talk of an intervention in Niger because France got humiliated. And now we're talking about a U.S. military intervention there. When we're already losing in Ukraine. Or military intervention in Taiwan. It's this transition from global U.S. hegemony to the multipolar world order is a very dangerous moment in time. It's a necessary moment in time, but a very dangerous one. Very dangerous. And I, I said it, uh, it reminds me of something I, I said I way, way back towards the early piece, the early parts, the early days, excuse me, of the podcast. When I said America's becoming more insular and we're going home, we're, we're, we're becoming more inwardly focused, more isolationist, whereas China is becoming more and more outwardly focused. And this period of time until those two shifts complete, uh, specifically, uh, well, particularly the U.S. shift inwards, until that shift completes, then you're going to have this period of time where conflict is increasingly possible as the forces of the empire in the United States fight against the forces of the American nation. And the forces, well, I didn't say it like that, but, you know, the forces that want America to be involved everywhere, being in conflict with the forces that say maybe it's time to pack it up and go home. Those forces, as evident by their refusal to withdraw just 900 troops from Syria who are doing nothing, those forces aren't going to go away and they're not going to go away easily. And while they're still here, while they still have power, they pre present an inherent danger 
to us and everyone else because they're going to go put us in places. They're going to stay in places that we don't need to be in and get us into conflicts that don't need to happen. Again, Taiwan is a, such an, avo- an easily avoidable conflict that people just want. They just want it. They, it's not about stopping it. It's not about peace. It's about we want the conflict because we want to feel important. And that's dangerous. But we're, we're seeing that. And with the neglect of our own people with these one disaster after the next, I can only imagine how many people are going to turn up for Trump when the 2024 election comes around, especially with inflation, especially with the state of the economy. We're slipping into a depression and it's going to be blamed on the Democrats. They, they have, it's going to be blamed on them. They have the presidency, they have the Senate. They had the House for two years. It's going to be blamed on them. What happens next? Well, if we get a Trump presidency, we'll we'll have a one hell of a time getting out of that depression. I I think we will in time, and I think that that the blow will be greatly softened if we have a Trump presidency. And I think there will be a Trump presidency. I don't see how America First doesn't win out. I think the struggle between American involvement and American isolation, well, or at, at this phase in the game, American retrenchment, not quite isolation yet. I think that struggle is about to have a swing decisively in favor of going home. But until that struggle, but until that decisive swing happens, which will come with a Trump presidency and him being sworn into office, because he, he has to be in office first. And uh, I, I have no idea what these people are going to do. And when they lose, <laughs> I have no idea what they, they're going to throw the, the kitchen sink at us for kicking them out of power. But for the time being, the people who want us involved everywhere wanting to cement their power and cement their position, not just at home, but around the world, because they're fighting a two-front battle, they're going to be incredibly dangerous. And with these multinational organizations work actively working in opposition to them in one region after the next, I have the strong sneaking suspicion that these people are going to do something stupid, these people being our government. But we will see. I mean, it's not like the rise of the multipolar world order is a bad thing for United States. People uh, are particularly and particularly on the more populist conservative side tend to think that way because they're overtly hostile to China. But really, it's it's not. It's only a problem when it comes to you maintaining control. And I think that's what it really is. Because even the people who want to go home uh, haven't reconciled going home with not having control over everything everywhere. They haven't, they haven't reconciled that yet. And we'll get to that point. But the reconciliation hasn't happened yet. So we maintain con- conflicting beliefs. And by we, I mean other people. <laughs> Where we want to go home. We don't want to be the world's policeman, but we want to have a say in everything that goes on around the world. And those two ideas just don't mix. But the multipolar world order isn't bad for the United States. In fact, we of all nations stand to gain the most if we were to embrace the multipolar world order. Because not only will we not have to be the world's policemen, not only will we not have to fight China, if we left these alliances alone, instead of building more and more and more and more alliances and getting more and more and more and more commitments, if we went home and actually pursued an America first policy, well, America first policy doesn't mean go fight a war with China. America first doesn't mean go give $200 billion to Ukraine. So right off the bat, China and Russia don't have to be our enemies. 
America first is building our own supply chains, our own manufacturing, and strengthening our own dollar based in gold. So you do those things. Suddenly, China's not an enemy. In fact, China's just another trade partner. You do those things, and you don't have to worry about supply chain disruptions. You don't have to worry about China cutting off your chips because they invaded Taiwan. You don't have to worry about those things. You don't have to worry about a BRICS currency destroying the dollar's dominance overseas. Your currency would be backed in gold. It would have value in and of itself. You're the second largest economy in purchasing power parity terms. And we're deindustrialized. Imagine a reindustrialized United States. Now imagine a reindustrialized United States with a currency that's worth something that doesn't lose its value every year. How could any country in an environment like that where our troops are here defending our borders instead of in random locations around the world, uh, again, Syria, Iraq, you know, the usual suspects. In that world, the United States is safer, wealthier, and more prosperous and has better relationships with other countries outside of our borders. The multipolar world order does not have to be and in and of itself is not detrimental to the United States. It is merely our posture that makes it so. Our posture of wanting to control everything. But we can't control everything. But certain people in our government can't accept that they will no longer control everything, so they fight against something that was going to happen anyway. The rise of a multipolar world order. But, again, if we play our cards right, we can carve one nicely shaped piece of the pie out for ourselves in this new world order. And all we have to do is take a step back and through trade and an absence of allies, we can do exactly that. We can do it. It's, it doesn't take much, really. The United States is perfectly positioned to do so. We have trade access with the East and the West, Europe, Africa, Latin America, Asia. We have trade access with them all because we have two coastlines in the Atlantic and the Pacific. Like, we can be the great trading nation. It really doesn't have to be the way that it is now. And I think that a Trump presidency will demonstrate exactly what I'm talking about right now. Uh, I think that's exactly what we need. And, yeah, it can be done. There, there's, it, there's, That's just the best way I could put it. It can be done. And honestly, it should be done. Not just because I say so, but because it'd be beneficial to us and everyone else around the world. You want to help the world stop fighting the multipolar world. Work with the multipolar world. And we don't need to be part of some club. We don't need to be part of BRICS. You just do trade with everyone. Have alliances with no one. Work out bilateral trade deals, country by country by country. And now you have access to every market. Every country. Every good that is up for sale, you can have access to it. You can have it all. You just have to have the freedom of navigation <laughs> to do it. But we're not going to be able to do that if we have the wet, the dead corpse of the West strapped to our hip. We have to let that go. We have to let America first be America first and not the West first, not NATO first, and not our allies first. We have to let America first go all the way to its logical conclusion and be America first. And then we'll have exactly what we need. Trade with everyone, 
alliances with no one, and a military that fights for our country instead of plundering the resources of someone else, and a government that serves our people. Because if, if you remove our presence from every other country on the planet, and we're only in United our military is only in the United States, then guess what? If we have no alliances and our military is here, then your government has no other option than to be involved in American affairs. They have no other option other than to be America first, which is why I say that isolationism, the one true ideology, is America first taken to its logical conclusions. And I think that the great isolationist era is about to return to us after seven or almost 80 years of absence. It's, it's time, people. It's so time. Ah, but that is all I've got for you today, my lovely listeners. I do hope you've enjoyed today's broadcast on my geopolitical podcast. And I do thank you for listening to me rant about geopolitics every week. But that is all I've got. The world is changing in ways both good and bad and strange. Uh, definitely strange. But you know what? No matter how it changes, no matter what weird things we observe along the way, we will have fun watching it all together. Now, I've been your host, Sean Wade. And you've been listening to This Week in Geopolitics. So till we meet again next Monday, servus. This segment was taken from my podcast, This Week in Geopolitics. I have new episodes every Monday, so if you like what you heard, consider giving me a follow. Thanks for listening, and hopefully I'll see you next time. Servus.